Susan's looking for a good seat. <laughs> she's, she's, not, oh, she's not looking for a good seat. She's just checking in. All right, good morning. Welcome back to Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study of the uh, kingdom in exile, of the kingdom of Christ. We're in Zechariah 10. This is an aside from Ezra, is where we were. So we went to, we went to Ezra, to Haggai, to Zechariah. And in a couple weeks, we'll go back to Ezra and kind of pick up where we're at. I'm going to go change up. Eh, I'll probably get through with clicker. If it doesn't, it's going to dead, it might have a dead battery. So today's special thing is not only the premium Hershey Nuggets candy bars, but they've been stolen back from a thief. They were in my box, and somebody thieved them and uh, moved. I don't know who would be pilfering things out of my box. That stuff like that happened before, but... Uh, they were pilfered and moved, but they have been recovered. So they're extra sweet on that account. So. They mean you're melted? Uh, hopefully not. They were here in the building. They were just moved. So um, The Bible Project, I've pointed towards this before. This is a little snippet out of one of their slides in their video. But uh, it says, reading Zechariah is a wild ride. It's nonlinear. It's got a nonlinear flow of th thought. It's got startling imagery. Um, I just like the image, so I put it up there. Life doesn't fit into neat, orderly patterns, and we're invited to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom. And really, that's the key to what we're looking at. As we've worked our way through the visions and stuff like that, there was some weird stuff. Chuck and I have talked about the fact you could follow some of those symbols, you could follow it all the way through the Bible, front to back, and just have its own study on even some of that kind of thing. Uh, the temple itself is a study that could be done between the, the tabernacle, the temple, the second temple, the temple that Jesus was in, the temple of his body. Um, you could do some studies like that. So I thought it was a fair representation of Zechariah. I'm getting used to having bifocals again, so bear with me as I uh, trip and fall and try to read stuff here. So, um, anyways, I got some stuff from Kaufman to kind of outline where we're at today. Whereas the first eight chapters uh, featured the concerns relative to the building of the physical temple, without it all leaving out of sight the far more important matter the ultimate building of the true temple, the church, or the kingdom of Christ. At this point in Zechariah, the emphasis shifts almost totally to the true temple to be set up on the first advent of the Messiah. In other words, the first, when we were in Ezra, they started building the temple and they stopped. Went to Haggai and Haggai says, you know, you need to get busy. Zechariah says, well, God's taking stuff out of the way for you to get busy. Go back and build a temple. From here on, it doesn't talk about that physical temple, that physical second temple. It talks about the building of the church. It come, the coming of the Messiah is what these, the last four chapters, five chapters? Nine through 14, well, six chapters, I guess, whatever it is. So the last six chapters talk about really the Messiah. It seems wise to build one's interpretation of these chapters around the passages that are quoted by Jesus and the New Testament writers. And that comes from Homer Haley, his commentary on the Minor, minor Prophets. Um, for those who have the premillennial thought, there is a thought out there that some people believe that Jesus will come again, he will be king for a thousand years, and then he will go back to heaven. That is not what we teach, that is not what we believe, that is not what we believe that the Bible says. We are considered amillennial. Um, we are in the thousand years now. Jesus came, he is Lord, he is Christ, he is king. We've all said that, if you've been baptized, you've said that. He is king. At the end of time, he will take what's his and go back home. And the rest will be destroyed. And that's what the Bible teaches. 
So anyways, these two schools of thought, you can find a lot of stuff on the premillennial thought. Some of this imagery can look at thinking that uh, the kingdom of Israel will rebuild on earth. But if you're amillennial thought, a lot of it combats that thought. So my problem with some of this is just give me what I need. Give me what I need to teach. Give me so some of that might be statements. Some of it won't. Some will lead to discussion. Some won't. So that's kind of where we're at, anyways. Scholars generally place these chapters, Zechariah 9 through 14, at a later period in the prophet's life. So you had the early ones. The you know the eight, the six visions happened all eight visions happened in one night. This happens again later in his life. So, and if you really want to get into it, you can find people that will tear everything down. I, I. Um, it's always weird to me that you see things that are theologists say, and theologists sometimes apparently don't believe in God, because most of what they have to do is tears down what's cohesive, what's unified. So that's not what we see. So anyways, we're going to pick up in Zechariah 9. The three sections of Zechariah 9, you probably already, if you get your Bible open, the three headings are basically the same kind of thing. Judgment on Israel's enemies, the coming king of Zion, and the Lord will save his people. Those are the three sections of Zechariah 9. So we'll pick up on verse 1, and we'll see where we go from there. Zechariah 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. Whose words are these? The Lord. There you go. I guess I should have asked ahead of time. Is anybody allergic to nuts? If you are... Pass them on to a friend. Don't eat these. They probably got nuts in them. Okay? If you're allergic to nuts, afraid of nuts, or you're just plain nuts, don't eat these. So, uh, otherwise, they should be good. Like I said, make friends, make enemies, whatever. I'll pass it out. Some translations use the burden of the word of the Lord. That's, the ver- that's what it says in their text. Instead of oracle. The Hebrew word is masa, masal, sorry. And it literally means load. A lot of times when it's used in the Bible, it means a load that's carried. So how would this definition, if you use the word burden instead of oracle, how would it read different? That the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus in its resting place, and the Lord has an eye on mankind. What's that? Well, he knows everything. Oracle usually means, I mean, we know oracle is prophecy. And a lot of times we see that as, as a good thing. Um, but sometimes, you know, we have blessings and we have curses. So it's all like oracle. So the opposite is, this is a load. This is some bad news that's going to be, that's kind of come in here. That's going to come on the people of Damascus and Hadrach. So it's a burden. It's a heavy load. Steve hates it when I walk around because he can't catch me with the cameras. Um, so we're going to need a map. I'm going to use a map, then I'm going to tell you don't need a map. So tell I work. <laughs> so. Hadrach means enclosed, and it's symbolic Syria. That's, that's what I know of Hadrach. It's symbolic of Syria. You might know where Syria is relative to Israel? North. Chuck got that one. Chuck didn't need a map. So what do I have? I have a map that doesn't have Syria on it. So. All right. So this is a map of Palestine, 520 B.C. So this is a map at the time of Zechariah. Um, traditionally, Israel kind of comes down to a point right here and up. 
cross there. So what would be Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Dor and Ashdod? I think a little bit across the Jordan into Gilead, Ammon. Some of that's Israel. So that's typically what we consider Israel. These are some of the surrounding areas at a time, but we know that they've been gone. You know, the, the boundaries in the sand shift while they're gone for 70 years. So it shifts a little bit. Syria is typically Damascus, up in that area. It'd be Damascus is still in Syria. I've got another map. Here, let's go with this one. Um, this map, so you got Babylonia, Syria. Um, Syria goes from Aleppo. I know Aleppo is part of Syria, Hamath, Damascus. So Syria is kind of that section right there. If you're at home watching, you don't get to see my pointer. Go to CNN.com, figure out a map, because Syria is still on the map today. So anyways, what does that matter? Like I said, yeah, I got a map just because, but it also don't have, don't need a map. Clicking is going to be a challenge today. Uh, when all civilized men at that time, as well as all the tribes of Israel, were fastening their gaze intently upon Alexander the Great, his phenomenal conquest, they were actually fastening their eyes upon the Lord, for Alexander was simply God's servant of judgment and chastisement. That comes from Merrill Unger and his commentary on Zechariah. So we have talked about Alexander the Great in this class before, right? Class number one of this series, we actually talked about Alexander the Great. So we had the, the statue. The statue had the order of kingdoms. And the first kingdom at that time would have been what? Huh? Huh? Had a second, second kingdom came after Babylon. Huh? Medo-Persians? Good job, Mickey. All right. Medo-Persians were the second kingdom. And there was a kingdom after the Medo-Persians? It's all Greek to me. It's all Greek to me. Empire. And the Medo-Persians, they're kind of combined. Medo-Persians are the green. Don't separate them because then everything kind of works out weird. Some people try to do that. The green is the Medo-Persian Empire. This will be conquered by Alexander the Great. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar's statue. We saw that with uh, the handwriting on the wall. No, not the handwriting on the wall. The goat, yeah, with the horns. Yeah, the single one big horn? Yeah. Out of the goat? Out of the goat, yeah. So Alexander, Great's, Alexander the Great has been prophesied. We see him in Daniel. Um, we see him here. I guess the story is even that once Alexander got to uh, Jerusalem, he worshipped at the temple, and they actually or he brought tribute to the temple, let me put it that way, and they showed him where he was, he was prophesied that God said he was coming. So... Uh, he, I think I got some notes on that, that he basically spared, spared Israel because of that. Anyways. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, which are, the, though they were what very wise, Tyre was built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So there's more weight on the Medo-Persian Empire is really what it was. Um, this, this whole thing is going to come down on them. Tyre was a stronghold. Um, Tyre and Sidon, basically on the Mediterranean at the north end of Israel. That is Lebanon today, right? Tyre and Sidon are Lebanon, I believe. And you see those a lot through the Bible. I think it's just symbolic of pagans in general. Yeah, it's where Caesar came for Solomon's temple. 
And I understand there are no cedar trees left in Lebanon today other than on the flag. So that's my understanding. That may or may not be true, but that's my understanding. Uh, in verse 4, But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Tyre was a stronghold until Alexander the Great got there. He destroyed the city, and he took the rubble from the city, and he built a big seawall. He built a big jetty. The word, uh, the commentary I read used the word mole. I had never seen the word mole used to describe basically a jetty. 200 foot wide, he went out there and built this jetty. So basically, he took Tyre, the city of Tyre, and cast it into the sea. That's basically what Alexander the Great did. He also executed 10,000 citizens and enslaved about 30,000 more. So that's what he did when he got to Tyre. Verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron too, also its hopes are confounded. Kings shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be in uninhabited. Coppin said that the campaign of Alexander Great in subduing all the portions of the Medo-Persian Empire precisely fulfilled all the prophecies here against the various cities mentioned. So this prophecy says Alexander the Great's coming, he's going to do this damage. He did. Verse 9-6, mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. How would the people of God interpret a mixed people? And how would they interpret the pride of the Philistines or pride of Philistia? Well, we'll start with one. How would Jews, how would the people of God, interpret a mixed people? Mixed up with non-Jews. The race is no longer pure. The pagans, the, the Gentiles have mixed in the bloodline, and they're right there. A strange people, you know? And I like the fact that we use multiple versions because it gives us more than one side of the view, right? So a strange people, you take that and you mix it in with a mixed people. So how strange would be those who didn't know God, right? They might have weird customs. What kind of customs did the pagans have to worship? Don't even most of us don't want to talk about it, right? I still go back to the fact you got to have R-rated church sometimes. He doesn't believe that. <laughs> but yeah, they do some stuff that we just don't even want to talk about. Um, strange, odd, weird. Um, you ever been to? Have you ever? You ever worshipped at a different kind of church? It seems strange. It's, Yeah, they were totally repulsive. They were strange. They didn't know. They were strangers. How about that? Is that a good word? You mix that together, you just kind of see it. But they mix together. So dad might be a pagan. Mom might be a Jew. The kids are mixed and strange. They, you know, what did they learn when they pick up? Where did they go from there? It's hard to tell. What about the pride of Philistia? The pride of the Philistines? Philistines were always the enemies of the Israel of Israel. Always, since they moved into Canaan, they were enemies. They stayed enemies because they didn't wipe them out. One of the pride of Philistia was they had their own gods. They had their own pagans. So it's kind of against that. Mixed people should dwell in Ashdod. I'll cut off the pride of Philistia. I'll put the map back there. Ashdod's over on the Med again. Philistia's right there. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. That's Philistine. Philistine. It's right there. 
flesh to have the Philistines have a pride, have something on them. Yeah, to be a thorn in the flesh. And this is kind of kind of where he's coming to. Is he's pointing that God says, "I'm putting some weight on them as we go into the Messiah Messianic kingdom." That's actually going to go away. It doesn't really go away. It's just not part of God's kingdom. Chuck. They made sure it was Greek culture. They didn't accept any other culture but Greek. So you had to accept the Greek gods. Greek gods didn't have worship like it was for the pagan god, other pagan gods. The other pagan gods you know, required human sacrifice and like that. I don't think any of the Greek gods required any of that stuff. Yeah, I don't think the Greeks required human sacrifice and stuff like that either. I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, a pagans is typically it's blood in some form or fashion. I don't know that the Greeks or even the Romans really did that. I might, you know. But they were pagan, but they didn't follow along the lines with Molech and some of the other gods that, that they had in this region. Yeah, yeah, they came along with a different lineage. And that's, like I said, they, they, they you follow our gods. So you're Greek culture, you're going to be Greek culture. Verse 9 and 7, I'll take away its blood from its mouth, its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. These won't be exterminated. They're still going to be there. They're just going to be combined into Israel. And that's really what the, the prophecy says. Like the Jebusites when, uh, when Israel moved into Canaan. They didn't kill the Jebusites. They were just there. They were the thorn in the flesh. They stayed. I think those are the ones they made a deal with. Had, yeah, God said don't make a deal with any of them, and they made a deal with them. But they, yeah, the Jebusites said, we see how you're wiping out everybody else, but hey, we don't want any part of that. We'd like to have a, some kind of alliance. I think that's how the people that was. They lied? Yeah, the Jebusites lied to them, yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a deal. That's just how it is. In verse 8, then I will encamp at at my house is a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Alexander spared Jerusalem and gave the Jews special favors. That comes from R.E. Higginson. I got that quoted from Coffin's commentary. So that's kind of where it is. Um, they're spared. Then I will encamp in my house. Oh, sorry. They got another commentary part. Then entering Jerusalem, he offered sacrifice in the temple, heard the prophecy of Daniel about himself. And granted certain privileges to Jews throughout his kingdom, the empire. The privileges said to have been conferred were enjoyed under his successors. Alexander had a vast influence in bringing the Jews into closer relationship with the rest of Asia, so preparing them to fulfill their ultimate destiny as Christians. So that comes from Dean's commentary, the pulpit commentary. So, anyways, that's the word that I got that um, Alexander treated Israel different than he did other places in some form or fashion. And uh, verse 9, the text switches. This is switches coming to the coming king rather than the weight on the, the, um, the pagans. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your kingdom is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One of the things we talked about earlier was the fact that although you can, some people use this as premillennial, best way to look at this is what do you see carried over into the New Testament? What do you see carried over in the New Testament? 
that shows the coming of the Messiah, that, that finishes out this prophecy. So what do you see here that points to the Messiah? Riding a donkey. Riding a donkey. Riding a donkey is definitely something that points to a Messiah. Anything else? He is salvation. You're right. Salvation is he. Righteous and having salvation is he. It's quoted again where? It is. Prophecy quoted in all four Gospels. There you go. In some form or fashion, it's quoted in uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 5, Mark 11, 1 through 10, Luke 19, 29 through 38, and John 12 through 12, 19. He rode in a donkey, and that was in on a donkey, and they sent him. Didn't they send somebody to go get a donkey? Tell, tell those people, the Lord needs this donkey. Because it was already prophesied right here. It was a colt of a donkey. It wasn't just a donkey. It was a colt of a donkey. I would imagine those are a little harder to find. Well, they should be, right? So. A view of what a donkey is is kind of low. But actually, the donkeys were, were prized. They were kind of big and nicer and everything. So the colt would, would be a nice animal. So the colt would be more to size to ride rather than... Yeah. More of a regal thing, huh? Hmm. That's uh, it. Could be. Uh, that's all right. That's okay. Chuck and I were talking about there are certain things that you could do entire lesson or entire study, and donkeys itself would be something that could be a whole study on donkeys. It's as weird as it might sound. They thread all the way through. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what are the borders of Messiah's kingdom? We had Syria being closed in. We had the map of the Medo-Persians. We know even Alexander's. What are the borders of the Messianic kingdom, Christ's kingdom? Everywhere. No borders. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It can get into Philistine. It can get into Syria. It can get into places that we would never, ever think about it getting there. It's 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to you double. Set your prisoners free as mentioned in Jesus' first sermon. This is the first time he speaks. Luke 4, well, first time he has a sermon. Anyways. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What do you think the watery pit, waterless pit is that imprisons these people? Sin. Sin. Sin is the waterless pit. No matter how you dig, you, deep you dig it, it doesn't have to have water.
are the prisoners of hope. Are we? Us? 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 We, yeah. we are. We're waiting, right? We hope is Till it comes to fulfillment. Verse 13, where I have bent Judah, Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. You didn't expect to find the word Greece actually there, did you? I didn't. I was surprised when I actually saw the word Greece in there. Verse 14, and the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Here the text turns toward the victory of God's people spiritually. So we know the king's coming. This is the victory. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread among the sling, down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. For how great it is his goodness... How great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and do wine, young women. Even in Jeremiah or any of those, when he was proclaiming doom for them right then, he always had a promise for future. And so here it starts out in nine with doom, mm -hmm. and ends up with the greatest promise of all. Yep, it starts out with doom, and it goes into the greatest promise of all. You're right. It's a, it's a common thing with the prophecies. I, you see that in a lot of Psalms, too. You can almost... You, ends up saying, I trust in you to take care of it. Yeah, David, David had a lot of that kind of stuff. This is the woes that I'm going through. This is some of the... And it might go up, down, up, down. It might go down to up, up to down. But it's, you can feel David. All right, so moving on to verse 10, chapter 10. The restoration for Judah and Israel. Um, C.F. Peel titles this section, The Complete Redemption of the People of God. And Clinton R. Gill calls it Zion Triumphant Through the Messiah. Everyone call it the same thing. So, anyways, I like those titles better than the restoration of Judah and Israel because it points towards the Messiah's kingdom. It doesn't point towards an earthly kingdom that some people fall in the trap of. So, anyways, chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds, he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and diviners see lies. They tell false dreams, give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. What's the apostasy of Israel? What's got them into the problems that they've had? <laughs> household gods. Household gods. Where did we see the first household gods? Do you remember, know where we first see household gods? Egypt. Egypt has household gods, yeah. So I get to see you without hitting Bob in the head. When Abraham came from Ur. Yeah, when Abraham came from Ur, they go on a journey and they go up to Hebron. Is it Hebron? They go up, and they go north, and they go south. And uh, 
Say it again. I'm a long way ahead. Isn't that a problem now that people always want something else? They will not accept just the simple gospel. Yeah, they always want something else. They what we have is never enough for people. That's uh, there's places that feel more. important and they'll, they'll put away everything else for that it'll be something else after that it'll be something new something first four from him shall come the cornerstone from him the tent peg from him the battle bow from him every ruler all of them also what references to the Messiah do you see here cornerstone. the cornerstone we can never miss the cornerstone um, 1 Peter 2, 3 through 8, and I also put the next one there too, sorry. For him from, for him from every ruler, for him every ruler. That's in John 19, 11, you can see that. Jesus answered him, he's talking to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is greater sin. So you can see both of these in there. The cornerstone's a good one. We've been, uh, on Wednesday nights, a couple weeks ago, I think we saw a lot of the, uh, the rock showed up. You had rock in your Sunday morning lesson last week too, didn't you? Yeah, and I thought, <clears throat> brought it back to the statue where the, the stone that came in and broke, yeah. broke everything. The stone that broke everything. Yeah. Uh, and I know John Fisher's always looking for new ideas. I was going to tell him rock, paper, scissors ought to be his, an idea, but you can follow the line of the rock, but even paper, looking at the Old Testament and the covenants with that.
the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. How will God's people fare in spiritual battle, battles? How will Christians fare in spiritual battles? I shouldn't have said God's people because, quite honestly, today, in the day of the Messianic kingdom, the day of the Messiah, believe it or not, we win. He always wins, right? That's what he tried to teach in the Old Testament. Try to teach that. He's all like we are today, right? I'm losing right now. I, I give up. But he wins. And it was something I taught the kids long ago when they'd watch like a movie or something. I said, good, always triumphs over evil. But the movie will turn out that way. It's not always easy to see. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. There's no promise here for recreating, recreating any secular state or providing Israel with an earthly dynasty descended from David or of giving Israel carnal victories over their political enemies. Of course, the inherent purpose of God to preserve Israel till the birth of Messiah occurred, resulted also in the necessity of God's providential protection until that was done. If I ever write my own book, I'll make sure to use so many big words that there's no way to understand what that really said. Um, what this says is, this does not say that Israel will be a political state. This does not say that God will preserve that piece of real estate forever. Um, that does not say that. So. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will say the house, oh, we just read that. All these promises speak of the salvation of souls from sin, the bringing back of the captives in sin to the fold of Jehovah. Will the Jews be excluded in that? No, they're the ones that are going to spread it. Not yeah. if there's a remnant. They're included. Yeah, they were originally, like I said, they were the ones that spread the gospel, right? They were the first ones. Jews are not excluded from that. No, always be a remnant. There are people with Jewish bloodlines who became Christians. We see it early in the, we see it in the New Testament. It happens today. So it's just that's not the, the key anymore. So don't lose that either. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. And their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in. And I have redeemed them. And it shall be as many as they were before. I like this metaphor. I will whistle for them. The great, the great shepherd. He just calls in the sheep, right? Chuck, wouldn't it be easy? We just whistle. That's all we got to do. We, we've missed this. We just have to whistle. We have some sheep that are hard of hearing. <laughs> See that are hard to hear. Just whistle. Just bring them on in. So, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria, and I shall bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon. Till there is no room for them. Egypt and Assyria refer to the slavery of sin. Those are places where God's people were enslaved. It's the metaphor still there, the simile, whatever you want to call it, symbolism. 
It's not a physical place. That's why I said you don't need a map after you get to Asset. Verse 11, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. What is our spiritual passing through the sea of troubles that separate us from our slave, slavery to sin? What does that call? Come on, Jeff. You got this. Yeah. First, it's, the Red Sea. It passed through the Red Sea. Then the Jordan River. The Jordan River. It's baptism. Holy cow, look at you go. I guess you can't say holy cow when we're talking about pagans and idols. But, you know. Utter nonsense. <laughs> Utter nonsense, that's it. It's baptism. That's what we're passing the sea of trouble. We strike, you know, we'll get away from the slavery. Verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. In Acts 15, 8 and 9, the, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's really where it's going. How do we walk in the name of the Lord? Is that my last line? Yeah, basically. How do we walk in the name? How do we walk in the Lord? That's the thing. We walk with light. We walk with pride. I make them strong. And they just walk in His name. And that's the key. We don't walk with our name. We don't walk with the shame and the sin. We don't walk with that. We walk strengthened with his name. Back on the water, the baptism, water always, he cleansed the whole earth with the flood. He used water different ways. God has used water many, many different ways. There's a whole series of lessons on water. I just... <laughs> That's where we're at. Chuck's going to pick up next week with Zechariah 11, right? Maybe 12. Thanks for joining me this morning. Enjoy.